0: Before we go to the Pete Weber interview this week, um, I, I just know. want to start the pod by saying thank you and a good luck to our departing talent director, producer, engineer, and a guy who probably thought I was a royal pain in the can. But it was to make sure the podcast was better Carlton I just want to thank you for Allowing me To do this pod And believing in my ability So as you move on Into your next challenge In your next journey of your life With you and your family Just want to say thanks And good luck From Me as a member of the Believe Podcast Network And everybody that is a member of this network and the newest member of the network. And as we move forward with the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, I know that Carter, Nick, and Dustin, who will be taking over the... Blind Broadcaster Podcast production side of it, we will take this podcast and everybody that's doing their podcast on this network to the next level and beyond. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. My guest this week, Pete Weber. If you like interviews like this and would like to hear more of them, please subscribe. Subscribe rate and review the blind broadcaster pod if you have suggestions for people that you would like to have on the show email me luther.king.tsb at gmail.com enjoy the episode Did you have a chance to broadcast in high school or when did you know that broadcasting was for you?
1: I had a chance, uh, totally by chance. And I believe I told the story to you when we were together last time. Yes. I was uh, not able to play high school football my senior year because of a pinched nerve in my neck. So I took a job with the local newspaper in Galesburg Mm -hmm. and I was taking calls uh, on – essentially high school playing nights. So in football season, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then the sports editor sent me out to cover a game involving my school. There were three radio broadcasts going on that night. Whoa. And on one of them, uh, the guy I was sitting next to in the press box, there two guys sitting next to the press box who were on the air on one station. And they were, they are both the morning broadcast team. So here it is eight thirty at night or something like that. And they've, these guys have been up uh, since six, five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine they were using something called coffee to keep them going. Of course. Coffee (laughs) can cause you to need to go. And one of them had to go. He handed the microphone to me and took off for about 10 minutes and I filled in for him.
0: Oh my! Yes. Coffee. That's what I knew I felt comfortable. Coffee can be a good thing and coffee can be a bad thing depending on when you actually drink it. Exactly. So,
1: And it could have been rot gut coffee, but that was not the case. That that particular high school press box had good coffee. It wasn't anything that was – the acid was going to destroy your insides.
0: (laughs) So when did hockey come to the picture? Was hockey always something you wanted to do, or were there other sports before hockey came into play for you?
1: I was inspired locally by a guy named Bill Pearson, who I had – lunch with in minnesota a year ago he's in his 80s now and he moved up there uh because he was such a fantastic caller of basketball Mm -hmm. and of football uh but i was always drawn to baseball and hockey and it it depended upon what time of year it was Mm -hmm. as to which i was drawn toward so hockey i really got to embrace it when i got to college because at notre dame our hockey program had just gone division one and uh, playing some of the teams coached by Herb Brooks at Minnesota, uh, Badger Bob Johnson at Wisconsin. We were in the same league with them. Uh, So I got a high level of hockey very early on and got the chance to do it both on the uh, student radio station and then later when I graduated and went back to get my master's degree, I did it on the commercial station in town.
0: What was Herb Brooks like as a coach when you got a chance to cover him? As a coach?
1: obviously very thorough as a human being. I'm not going to endorse him, but as a coach, (laughs) he was, he was top notch. No, we, I was with the Los Angeles Kings. We were Mm -hmm. in the twin cities when the U S Olympic team in 1979, 80 was playing a schedule of heavy uh, central hockey league teams. And we were there for a game one night and Bob Miller, who had worked at Wisconsin when I was at Notre Dame, Bob was my broadcast partner with the Kings. So we both had familiarity with her and we asked if we could have some time with him. He said, no. So uh, <laughs> that, that just sort of typifies uh, our relationship with the coach of
0: the Golden Gophers. So what was the, how much did writing help you and how much writing do you still use now? as the, back as the radio voice when they kept rotating you between radio, TV, and now back to radio as the voice of the Predators.
1: I think, Luther, that writing helps you organize your thoughts. And it's a great exercise in that regard. I still enjoy writing. I'm doing some yet. Some on the website. Some for people out of town. Uh, And that was, I mean, for a kid who grew up with sometimes as many as five newspapers a day in the house, Uh, I obviously was drawn to it. Uh, And and some of the great writers, and thinking of uh, the people that I had the chance to read Mm -hmm. at that time, David Condon, the columnist in the wake of the news that he inherited from the Chicago Tribune, a a newspaper I had to sneak into the house because my father considered it a Republican newspaper, and we certainly weren't going to go along with their line of thinking.
0: Really? But Your dad I, thought that Chicago Tribune was a Republican newspaper? Well, there's no wow. question that
1: it was. It was. Okay. Colonel, Colonel McCormick definitely had that bent. But by the time I was coming into awareness and the ability to read and digest, right. uh, that was becoming something from the past. Uh, okay. So that was, And then. We were safe with the St. Louis Globe Democrat, as you can tell from the title of that publication, <laughs> and, uh, yes. and the period journal star, *Galesburg Register Mail, and the uh, Chicago Sun-Times.
0: So when you were reading all those newspapers and all the great writers of your youth and the writers that you, you know, deal with now, has there been much change in the writing landscape between then and now? I mean, I know the technology's changed, but... Oh, yeah.
1: Well, there's not, the thing is, there's not as many of them as right. there used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the papers I cited uh, as being in our house, the, the St. Louis Globe Democrat folded, I, the rest are still in existence. Uh, but if I had also cited, because we, we, for a while, we had the Chicago Herald American coming into the house too, and that, a newspaper in the early 70s transitioned to Chicago Today, long before we had USA Today. Mm. And then its last uh, publication date, I believe, was fittingly enough Friday, August the 13th, 1974. So, uh, what a great time for a newspaper to fold. And the same essential <laughs> date happened in 1982 with the Buffalo Courier Express uh, when I lived there. So, uh, that's I think the major difference. And the other is that we've had two transitional things that I want to see how they affect things Mm long-term in the early nineties. Here we had the, uh, the national sports daily Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: to go through that every day, you had to have a lot of time. I mean, (laughs) they really pioneered the expanded box scores that USA today condensed a little bit Mm -hmm. and they had them all from every game from the day before and then you talk about long form articles Uh, i (laughs) that's what we sort of see reflected today in the national the online publication that has really spread uh, even coming into nashville right now and i think that that is uh, where most people tend to go now is online yeah i I just i just think people have a difficult time taking a a laptop they can take a, a a slate or take a a tablet into the Mm -hmm. bathroom with them when they need. But, uh, you know, that's just, that's just (laughs) the way it goes right now.
0: What was it like working with the late, great, longtime voice of the Buffalo Bills, Van Miller? And what did he teach you that said, okay, I can do this broadcasting thing?
1: Most guys were like me in terms of, they understand we are not broadcasting, and we're not broadcasting brain surgery. Right. <laughs> Some are overly serious, and uh, since this is a podcast, I can say this: Van Miller used to take a legal pad and then a marking pen before each kickoff and scrawl across it. It's all bullshit. <laughs> and then turn that pad around to all of us, so we would break up and get ready to have a nice, loose. Relaxed afternoon usually, though sometimes Monday or Thursday nights. Uh, and, and that's at Luther, he even did that uh, before Super Bowl twenty-five. So really? really? So just just so you know, yes. Even though in Super Bowl <laughs> twenty five, it was like an armed camp because the first Gulf War was underway,
0: mm-hmm. and we
1: we had to get to the stadium eight hours before kickoff. Ooh. Not just because we had a three hour pregame show, but because they were taking that long to process people to get into the sombrero in Tampa Bay.
0: So, what was your role as a part of the pregame show? Were you producing? Were you? I was.
1: I was the host. And then, okay. I, then I did the color during the game broadcast. And then we went downstairs to the dressing room to do the post-game interviews. And I've got a, a picture of me and Eddie Ritkowski, who was one of my broadcast partners with Van, talking with uh, former Georgia Tech offensive lineman uh, John Davis downstairs just before, uh, because the room was so crowded and cramped locker rooms in the sombrero, uh, before we talked to Scott Norwood who to this day still lives down the wide right kick on the last play of the game.
0: Oh my, really?
1: And I gotta tell you this, Scott did not dodge any questions. He stayed right there. The next day we flew into Buffalo and we had a helicopter and police escort from the Buffalo International Airport downtown to Niagara Square and City Hall. There was a big rally for the team held there and all of us walked up on the stage Scott Norwood was staying behind me, and he said fans probably didn't want to see him at that point in time, but boy, was his opinion changed when they kept calling for him, and it was not (laughs) calling for him as if a lynch mob. They essentially were saying, we love you, Scott.
0: How did soccer broadcast into your life?
1: I came in covering my first stint in Buffalo, uh, 76 to 78 we would cover the, the old North American Soccer League. And we did not have a franchise then, but there were franchises in Toronto, a 90 minute drive away, the old Toronto Metro-Croatia, and then another 70 minute drive away in Rochester, the Rochester Lancers. And uh, we did, for example, we made Darnshire. We were in Rochester every time the New York Cosmos came to town. And that was, uh, you know, the uh, mounted police surrounding the field protecting the likes of Pele, Giorgio Canaglia, Franz Beckenbauer, uh, Ricky Davis, Shep Messing, and that whole bunch. uh, (laughs) Because that was was probably, and I think when history of soccer in North America is written, will still be, and I would say for another 30, 40 years at least, as the MLS is here now in Nashville and continues to grow. But I think that will be acknowledged as the greatest assemblage of soccer talent ever put together.
0: What was Chick Hearn like when you worked with Bob Miller? What was the late great boys of the Lakers like to deal with?
1: Tremendous. He was my essentially my, my father on the West Coast. He was a great advisor, uh, gave me a lot of outstanding counsel. I just came across some VHS tape the other day here, working through my garage, as you had the time to do
0: uh,
1: <laughs> in, in periods like this. Yes. And I found a, a video of... Chick and I working a game together at Chicago Stadium with the Lakers and Chicago Bulls. And he handled me with kid gloves. We had a great time together. And keep in mind, as I was a youngster, I listened to Chick Kern doing Bradley basketball when he was still in Peoria before he moved to the West Coast in the mid to late 50s. Really? Yes, sir. One of a great uh, procession of uh, sportscasters out of Peoria who went forward to uh, bigger and better things and essentially started by doing Bradley basketball.
0: And when did Nashville come aboard?
1: When did, it for me? For you, yes. When, when the Predators started in 98 in one sense, when Buffalo and Nashville each got franchises after purchasing and moving them, Nashville from Evansville and Uh, Buffalo uh, taking a a franchise out of Oklahoma and into the American association. So I started traveling to Nashville on a regular basis for baseball series uh, going back to 1985. So depending upon the schedule format at the time, I was in Nashville, either three or four series per summer. That was reduced from 88 to 91 when the International League and the American Association played interlocking schedules, so that cost us uh, one trip to Nashville a year. But mm-hmm. so I was my familiarity with Nashville began at Greer Stadium in April of 1985.
0: Now, did you broadcast Sound games with uh, Bob Jamison, or was it somebody else at the time? No, I was I, I was you...
1: broadcasting Buffalo. Right? Back oh, to Buffalo. Buffalo. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Buffalo Bison's Nashville Sounds.
0: How long were you the voice of Buffalo and? What was the International League like then and now?
1: Well, we were the American Association. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was – there were three AAA leagues at the time that since then have been merged. I think there's quite a bit of sentiment to break them up again because of geography. For example, why should Nashville be in a league with, you know, the West Coast teams like Sacramento?
0: Fresno. uh, And
1: and Fresno and so on, yes. And Vegas. But here – They In the central part of the country, Mm -hmm. they could be pulled out along with Louisville from the Pacific Coast League, go in with Omaha and Des Moines. And Iowa. Yep. Yeah, Omaha, Des Moines. Yep. And then go straight up I-65 and join in with Louisville and Indianapolis, and then slightly to the east, Columbus and Toledo, and have a pretty nice, tidy, at least division, if not separate league. And I think that would work out greatly for them. And I'm sure... That the accountants would love the reduction in travel expense,
0: and don't forget Memphis in that mix too. Memphis, don't yeah, forget. I put Memphis in there. Yes, sir. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember back. What was it when the sounds would go to Tim McCarker Stadium, that carpeted facility? Yeah, and play the Redbirds with, and then the Memphis. Uh, I think they were the Redbirds. I think they. They, they played the, the Memphis
1: Chick in Chick- in the. In the uh, they played when they were in the Southern League. Yeah, before they made the move. Yes, they were playing the Memphis Chicks.
0: Because I remember they were in the league with, what, Louisville, then Indianapolis, then Buffalo. Right.
1: And that lasted from 85 through 97.
0: And I think at that point you had left Buffalo, right? Or when did you When did you leave I, Buffalo? I went,
1: I went full-time to hockey and still living in Buffalo uh, in 95.
0: Oh, you went full-time hockey in 95, working with Rick Generat, right?
1: Yep. No, he, he was on TV and I was on radio.
0: Okay. Because I always wondered, like, how that worked. Because I know now they've gone back to Buffalo, went back to simulcast with a generator during both radio and TV.
1: Right. Right as I left. Yes.
0: And I know for a long time they had the Predators going simulcast and then they broke it up and then they had you rotate, you and Terry rotate from radio to TV from time to time or yes. go back to radio. Yes. And then you would have another cover analyst. How is it right. working with different analysts? as you have over the years when you've rotated from radio back to TV, back to radio, and you, you may have some idea of who you're working with and then who you're not.
1: Well, usually the team stayed together. Okay. No, what are the medium was radio or television. Okay. Uh, so that wasn't that difficult. I mean, I'd, I'd have to get down to, you know, incredible accounting to give how many games I have worked with Terry Chris, but I, I think it's a fair assumption that we worked about 1500 games together uh, <laughs> over the, over the years. So uh, easy as possibly could be imagined working with Crispy. It's been easy. It's been very similar working with Hal Gill the last several years. And before that, my real rotation was for a couple of years uh, between Chris Mason and Brent Peterson. Mm-hmm. And, and then both they, of them easy to work with.
0: And now they've moved <clears throat> Chris Mason to full time TV.
1: Right. Right. So he has to shower every day.
0: What is it? I mean, because I, I know you've probably worked with, you know, guys that have been defensemen, goaltenders. Crispy as a former coach. Yep. And mm-hmm. a former forward. And a former forward.
1: I just mm-hmm. watched him win the Stanley Cup this morning on an NHL uh, network replay. Uh, the 75 Flyer Stanley Cup.
0: The the uh, ever popular Broad Street books. Yes, my math is right. Yeah, because I, I saw that little rivalry thing on YouTube with the Philadelphia Flyers and their annual constant with uh, what, Pittsburgh, I think.
1: Oh yeah, that's been a great one. Unofficially referred to as the uh, Keystone Cup for the mm-hmm. Keystone State.
0: How do you come up with your? How do you come up with the catchphrases that you use? Like. Porky's door, the goalie's sitting on the puck uh, like a hen hatchery.
1: Well, that that one was easy. The goalie's sitting on that like going on the hatchery. Now, Porky's door <laughs> is a true story. That, really? goes, that goes back to the auditorium in Buffalo, uh, which I closed in the spring of uh, 1996. But the, the door where the Sabres exited and entered the ice, mm-hmm. it was right to the side of the goal the Sabres shot at twice uh, each night. Porky Palmer was an assistant equipment man for the Sabres, who now lives in Vegas, so I see him when we go out there. And he discovered, as he would lean on that door during the action, if he would lean particularly hard just as the puck hit the bottom of that door, the puck would shoot out in front of the other team's goaltender, and result in a great chance. So that's how Porky's Door came about. As a matter of fact, we got an Emmy nomination for that. Digging up old video when the Predators went back into Buffalo uh, our first year.
0: I saw something about the odd when you know when they went back in there and talked about it from when the players were in there and the locker rooms and everything else. I was still standing before they demolished it. The dearly yeah. departed odd. Yep. What was that building like? Because I've watched it, but I don't think the video on YouTube really does it justice. Can you help me as a blind person understand what these old barns were like? Well,
1: that old barn is a dear place to me. That's where I met my wife. That was a small barn. It wasn't the full 200 by 85 ice surface, as many of them were not until, until the 90s. It was a little bit short and a little bit narrow. About mm. six feet short and two feet narrow, as I recall.
0: So it was 194, 194 over
1: 83. 83, yeah. And the seats almost felt like you were hanging over the sides, looking down at the action. It was a very compact
0: building. Kind of like a gondola-like?
1: Yeah, for everybody, though. Wow. And they It was a 10,000-plus seat building when the NHL and the NBA moved in in the fall of 1970, the next summer when the Braves and the Sabres schedules were completed, Mm -hmm. it was a, you can find this on YouTube, an incredible project where they jacked the roof up had to do it it simultaneously and then put in suites and about 6,000 additional
0: seats. Whoa. I wonder how that, I wonder how that project turned out.
1: Very well. (laughs) Very well. It worked. Nobody, no, no seats fell out. Nobody, uh, you know, got injured as a result. But I'll tell you the, and those were the orange seats. Those were the ones that were so steep, so steep. I thought had Velcro been easily available at that point in time, in the early <laughs> 70s, they could have made a lot of money selling or renting Velcro safety straps to uh, sit up there.
0: So it felt like you were actually climbing Mount Everest in those steep seats?
1: A little bit, but I thought it was a little bit more risky if you were at the top of the orange section and had a, uh, let's say, a concessions tray and mm-hmm. uh, walking down to lower seats. You want to be very careful with your footing.
0: Now, how did you manage to meet your, your lovely bride that you've been together with for what, over 30 years, if my math yep. is right?
1: Yep. Over 30 years. Well... Uh, A friend of hers convinced her to go to a game. Uh, Her friend, I worked with uh, her friend's brother upstairs in the press box, and uh, we got introduced prior to a game against the Quebec Nordiques. Uh, Downstairs, outside the dressing room, where I held forth as the then uh, intermission host on cable, and uh, shortly thereafter, we began going together.
0: Whatever happened to the Quebec Nordiques? Why, Why did they kind of fade into obscurity? Why, why is it not, why are the Quebec Brundiques not really minged as much as they should be? Believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe in this day and age,
1: money. The not taxation, surprised. The taxation in Quebec City, or in the whole province of Quebec, is almost <laughs> prohibitive. There would there'd be no way they could really afford to sign, for example, free agents, as right. we have today. Because you'd almost have to pay a 50% premium to the player. Wow. Yes, to be able to cover the increase in taxation. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, I feel very sorry for Shea Weber. I felt sorry for the Predators as well when they traded him to Montreal. Mm. But all of a sudden, going from the state of Tennessee with no state income tax to going to Quebec had to be a real financial kick in the butt.
0: Pete, that's almost like going from Tennessee to Los Angeles, where it's a 13% tax increase.
1: Or or to Illinois, which is even worse, my home state.
0: How, like, how much worse is it from compared to?
1: Well, at least in California, you get sunshine. Yeah. In Illinois, Illinois you get rain and bad roads.
0: (laughs) So, when you did you, let me try this again. Did you ever go into the forum in Montreal?
1: Oh, yeah. I broadcast games there going back to 1978 through 81 with the Kings. And then I broadcast uh, one of the last ones in there with the Sabres uh, in the 95 96 season. Uh, And uh, that was a special place, to be certain.
0: And now they have the Bell Center. I know the, from whatever, from a lot of the broadcasters, when they go in there, that the view is not too bad either in the Bell Center.
1: No, because they initially were having trouble with the province uh, for code violations. They said, listen, the Canadians said, we build one of these every 70, 75 years. Uh, and the people want the good sight lines. So this is what we're doing. And since they were hockey and the uh, gods of the province, they were allowed to do so.
0: And also in Vancouver, the, uh, I don't know what they call it now. I think it was formerly known as GM Place, where the Predators had the hardest time to get wins in that place.
1: Yeah, they they have had on occasion, but uh, great playoff series with them in 2011 when they got to the second round for the first time. That was mm-hmm. fun, uh, and. Yeah, we see it was GM Place. They had to take that label off the building when they hosted the Olympics because of International Olympic Committee sponsor agreements. And now Mm. they are one of many, many sports facilities in Canada to uh, have the name Rogers on it. Yep, it could be Rogers Arena, Rogers Center. Uh, I mean, the Blue Jays have that. It's the Rogers Place, I believe, in Edmonton now. Yeah, to keep track.
0: When the Preds made the playoffs the first time and played Detroit with all those future Hall of Famers, and Osgood, and all the boys, what was it like playing? What was it like in the Joe?
1: Well, number one, very cramped. Uh, they never designed a press box there. It was just something that the, they used the upper the upper role that had not been designed for a press box for uh, writers and broadcasters. Mm-hmm. Tough sight lines on occasion. And it was a horrible changeover from what they'd had at the Olympia where I'd also broadcast where like Buffalo, like Montreal, you were hanging over the side of the boards and you could hear conversations on the ice coming up your way. Uh, But the Olympia, I know a lot of people say they miss it. As a visiting broadcaster, I miss it not at all. And being (laughs) being in the current Little Caesars arena, where you have great sight lines. And not only that, for an older broadcaster, very important. Readily accessible bathroom <laughs> facilities. I'm quite
0: happy. And I will say this, good sound quality too. Yes. Especially for when you actually hear the puck. Because I always wondered, as a broadcaster, are those parabolic mics, those, those um, effects you get off TV, really important for you as a broadcaster? Or, do you, or is it...
1: Actually, sometimes, Luther, I don't want to hear them. Uh, Really? Yeah, so it won't be in my headphone mix. That's one of the things I request because it can be distracting for me. And we had the same thing for a while when I was doing television, and Fox had all those crazy sound effects when uh, various graphics would go on and off the screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I found them distracting, and I just said, please don't put them in my headphones. And it's been that way for years.
0: So, as a play by play broadcaster, when you have broadcasters that are trying to improve, like myself and other young broadcasters, what are your biggest do's and don'ts in this business that you've learned over the years that you still pass on now?
1: Well, I guess the biggest do, and especially for the younger broadcasters or any broadcaster on radio, is to keep giving the score. And I have, I have. Uh, one simple little tool, difficult to find now in its original form, but it came from Red Barber's book, The Broadcaster. He used one of those three-minute egg timers. And mm. once it rang out, ran out, he would give the score, flip it over, and wait for the next, uh, you know, provocation from it to give the score yet again. Very difficult to find those now. So mm. I find myself using a stopwatch dedicated, very much dedicated to that job.
0: So, so you have a stop. So, you have a stopwatch at every game, or is, or is oh, it? Oh yeah,
1: I have I have one for commercial breaks, for which uh, I wait a hundred seconds, and then uh, one that I use for you know every three minutes, to get the score.
0: What's your normal game day preparation for a broadcast like?
1: Well, if I'll, I'll give you what a basic thing is, some of them are going to vary mm-hmm. depending home or road and. This is the second of two games and back-to-back nights. But essentially, go to the rink in the morning. This might Mm -hmm. change because coaches are getting away from this. Okay. But the morning skate generally for the home team goes around 10 o'clock, 10.30. After that, we have a chance to get an audience with the coach and the players. Uh, I record my coach's pregame show at that point in time.
0: Yeah, because I I always wondered when you did that.
1: Yeah, might get a player. Uh, And if I don't, Hal Gill will. I get an interview with, if we're at home, either Terry Crisp or Brent Peterson, from Mm. what they consider that night's keys to the game. Right. And if we're on the road, they're not there, so I do that with Hal Gill or Chris Mason. And then I email those back to the station. Make sure I go over the rosters that we get from the morning uh, skate notes. There may be some changes because sometimes guys come back from the morning skate, their lunch, and an afternoon nap, not feeling too well, so they won't be able to go. So then pay very close attention to the pregame up skate when they come out roughly uh, 50 minutes before the game is scheduled to start and keep track of the combinations we see there. Also important in the afternoon for me, uh, ever since I had my heart attack, my cardiologist said, uh, if you feel a nap coming on, don't fight it, take it. You'll be much better off for doing so.
0: How did you know, speaking of that, when something wasn't, was something was kind of feeling off when you were in Minnesota?
1: Yeah, uh, well, it was the sensation where I had never experienced before, and it was the pins and needles sensation along my jawline from Mm. ear to ear. Mm. So I shut down my uh, elliptical workout at the St. Paul Hotel, went downstairs, showered, put on my clothes, and then just for the heck of it, I Googled my symptoms. And it said, go get checked out. You need to check out. And Mm -hmm. uh, there you have, uh, so close to the rink there in Minnesota, walked past the statue of the beloved Herb Brooks, went Mm -hmm. into the building, and uh, our trainers, the Predators trainers, Andy Hostler and uh, DJ Amadio, looked me over. The Minnesota Wild trainers came over, and then the Wild uh, personnel summoned in the St. Paul Fire Department EMTs they gave me two EKGs and I'm going to say less than 20 minutes time. And next thing I know, I was on a gurney being hustled out, uh, to an ambulance and taken the two block ride to United hospital. I went straight to a table in the cath lab there and I was, uh, they told me I was lucky. I essentially had intercepted a heart attack mm. and there was no damage to the heart muscle, but I had three stents put in
0: oh, that,
1: that morning. And, uh, I think I was done out of surgery. Uh, by must have been 10 10 in the morning so this all this other stuff had occurred with an early morning elliptical workout for me and uh, going over to the rink oh I got to also add John Tackett our uh, television producer made mm-hmm. sure I had some aspirin which is a great thing to ingest when having a as they call it now a cardiac event
0: so for you You've already done a few Stanley Cup Finals. You finally did one for Nashville.
1: No, I've only done one. I've only well, done the Nashville one.
0: Really? Yeah. Wow. I, so I waited
1: forty years for that, or thirty.
0: <laughs> so when you finally, when you finally got there, knowing that you were going to be the last team in the dance, you swept Chicago, and then you had what? San Jose after that? St. Louis and six. St. Louis, yeah. Yep.
1: And, and then the
0: Ducks. Then, after Nine, zero, one, you got through three, zero, St. Louis, you dealt with Anaheim, and that was a four, what? Four two, games, six games. Anaheim was
1: six games. Zero, that was a bloodbath. One,
0: what was was? I think there was a little bit of bad blood that was still.
1: Oh, not in. a little bit. There was quite a bit.
0: <laughs> so, was was there something along the line when? The Predators and Ducks played each other.
1: Yeah. Because we've had like three or four series with them. And uh, they've all been, let's just say, bloodbath type.
0: You can probably say that with Vancouver, too, because what was that year when they had, what was it, 2011 when Nashville hosted, I think, or had to go on the road and...
1: Had to go on the road. That was the year when uh, they played, or traveled like 16,000 miles for two playoff
0: series. Something like that. It, it it was a very high. Demanding, yeah. Yes. And I know that you would do some radio with Terry, and I know Tom would do some radio. And I think you would slide over to do TV, for, I think. For a couple of, uh, in
1: Vancouver, that was the second round, so I didn't have a chance to do television. Oh. Uh, the league does that, so it was Terry and me on radio.
0: So you, so you got the whole – so you and – Terry did the whole series or?
1: Yep, exactly.
0: So in the first round is when you guys, when you were, when you would rotate.
1: Right. And that, again, was entirely dependent upon what NB, what series NBC would take. And was that what also,
0: because I know it came down to the season finale that year, didn't it? Where Nashville had to, all they had to do was pick up a point and they locked in as the five or the four
1: that year. Let um, me see that year. Uh,
0: it was, trying, right along, it was right along those lines, yes. Because I know Vancouver was the top seed. And I know they pretty much got through their first round. I think they were waiting for the winner of the 4-5. And, and then, think, of
1: course, they went to the final and faced the Boston Bruins.
0: Yep. And I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about this when we couldn't finish when we were about to finish up last time. I remember you telling a story about the night when you were about to do a broadcast, I think it was in Iowa and a rat got in your broadcast phone line and started gnawing on it or something. While the no, national it wasn't the
1: phone line and it was actually in Phoenix. Oh, my wow. first year doing triple a baseball in 1981 okay. and the major leagues had just gone on strike. So <laughs> people are scrambling to get triple a and if not double a broadcasts on and by watching that ESPN documentary, uh, The Last Dance, that certainly was the case with ESPN trying to get as many Birmingham uh, uh, Barons games on as they could because Michael Jordan was with them in uh, 1994. And so they tried Mm. to get those well. So the Dodgers, that was the farm club I was working for in Albuquerque. And uh, that was a team that was incredible. It was 93-38 and when the final scores were told. And they Mm -hmm. won the league championship easily in a walk over Tacoma, which was the Oakland A's Farm Club. Mm -hmm. But we go, the big leagues went on strike that weekend in June. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, what also went on strike? Well, President Reagan had trouble with the air traffic controllers. So rather than flying to Phoenix, as we usually did, we had to take a bus across the desert from Albuquerque. Uh, And then, of course, the air conditioning of the bus broke down halfway across the desert Oh, great! As, as we're going to Phoenix. And we had Rudy law had brought on, I think like $150. He was still on big league salary from the Dodgers, $150 worth of ribs for everybody to eat on the uh, trip over <laughs> to Phoenix. So we smelled like ribs. We get there. We get that game against the, uh, the uh, Phoenix giants at the okay. time. Get that in, and that's fine, but then we go and get ready. There's supposed to be three more games in the series, and Tuesday I'm just about to go on there, and all of a sudden, the electricity goes out of my broadcast position. Then I found out it had gone out every place Oops. because of rats uh, eating through cables buried underneath the stadium, the electrical cables, oh, and hooked up in series rather than parallel circuits. So one cable bitten through turned out
0: all the power in the ballpark.
1: Oh, so, no. so then we ended up bussing back to Albuquerque a day later.
0: So basically, basically it was a nice above and a rat infestation destroying all the electrical stuff.
1: Well, I don't know if it was an infestation. It might have just been one for all we know. Because <laughs> later on, that's all they found was, uh, and I don't cow. want to turn this into a song, one fried rat.
0: <laughs> well, th- th- I think you just did. But that, because I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I, I forgot to ask him about that story about how the, you know, that night you were, I wasn't for sure where you were, but yeah, how the rat got basically, did basically, basically, you didn't have a broadcast,
1: right? Well, we didn't have a game, so, uh, we were, we were even. I, my, my listeners didn't miss anything, and uh, we had some double headers to make up later that summer.
0: So. The travel now, from when you started, is probably is much different and probably much easier. Oh yeah, but oh by far. What were the stories you had between the players and broadcast like? How long did it take you to get a rapport with the players? Then compared to now, and how long do you feel like it took you? to get that trust, to earn that trust with the coaches and everybody on staff as the broadcaster.
1: I've only had one coach I never really got along with, uh, and that was a baseball manager my oh, last wow. my last couple of years in Buffalo, and he didn't get along with anybody. Oh wow As a matter matter of fact, a player on that team is now a major league manager. And and when I run across Tori follow whose father very much connected here in Nashville, late father, was the producer of Hee Haw. Uh Tory will oftentimes say, hey, don't worry, I will still talk to you. That other guy would not be more than happy (laughs) to tell you. And uh, another guy on that team was Jeremy Burnitz, who had some time in the big leagues with the New York Mets and the Cleveland Indians. Good guy to talk to also. But when I started traveling with the Los Angeles Kings, Mm -hmm. uh, I was also the guy who handed out the uh, boarding passes. We were traveling commercially for all the players. So that really accelerated that process a great deal.
0: You're enjoying the social media with uh, Twitter?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do like Twitter. Uh, And and Twitter, and Luther, I'm going to have to go here in a little bit, but Twitter saved me from some on-air misinformation. Really? Okay. Yes. This is a good. Google whenever it was that Mm -hmm. Joe Paterno passed away. Because a premature report had come out that he had passed. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden in my earpiece, so I was doing television. Uh, Fox Sports in Los Angeles was saying, hey, we've got a graphic about the death of Joe Paterno. We'll put that up the next convenient break that we have. And I said, no, we won't.
0: No, I said, what are you talking
1: about? I just got a tweet from Joe Paterno's son. His father, in spite of reports that have come out, is not dead. He was about... 10 days later, but not at that mm. point in time. Yeah. And I, I was still shivering from the time when NBC Nightly News came on and said that Joe DiMaggio had passed, and Joe DiMaggio was watching in his hospital room oh my. In, Florida, in Florida. And uh, also think about uh, former coach of the, the Canadians and the Bruins and the New Jersey Devils, Pat Burns. He was listening to NHL Network Radio one morning and found out that he was dead. No. And, and then no. he, he, even better he called in and said hey i'm still here guys i'm not doing that well but i'm still here
0: <laughs> one last question because i know you have to get out of here in a couple of minutes i thank you for more than 15 minutes than we agreed to yeah because this has been a blast and hope we get to do this again and hopefully we'll have games to actually uh, talk about that would be nice but <clears throat> the broadcasters you've built that you've got a good camaraderie with and how often, oh, wait a minute, excuse me, let me back up a little bit before I get to that.
1: You're going in reverse now? Okay.
0: Yeah, kind of, sort of. (laughs) It's a podcast, you can kind of do that. Yes. How did you manage to get all the broadcasters from when the New York Rangers came to town or the broadcast, the um, great broadcasters, that you were able to get with the different teams that they used to cover? How were you able to pull that one off? Like Can you give me Mon- a little more
1: description there? Because I'm not so sure what you're talking about.
0: When you got Monty Hall and a few of the other guys.
1: Oh, Monty Hall. Well, he was he was a regular <clears throat> at Kings Games at the Forum. And so he would uh, – he guested it with me for a few intermissions and talked about what it was like to earn that munificent sum of $10 a broadcast in the old medicine square garden when he was doing rangers games we had just come to this country from toronto yeah so guys like that happy to to share their stories uh had the, the same with sam rosen who mm-hmm. was in many ways the heir to that job and uh jim gordon was a tremendous friend as well matter of fact jim gordon was in the other booth calling the New York Giants in uh, Super Bowl 25 against the Buffalo Bills.
0: I wondered who that other voice was because I always wondered who when he said, no, God, I'm like, who is that? Because I knew Van Miller, but I didn't know who the other guy was, and I think he had done the Giants for a while, and then Bob Powell took over for him.
1: A long time. He did both the Rangers and the New York Giants simultaneously for many years and actually was the uh, news director. Really? uh, WNEW, as I recall.
0: Wow. Now, you want to talk about a guy with a resume.
1: Yeah, pretty good resume.
0: Now, final question. How often do you get a chance to talk to the broadcasters of now, and who have been your favorites that you've actually gotten good stories out of that you commiserated with, and (laughs) what was it like because I've always wondered this when Rod Phillips retired, the voice, the long time voice of the Edmonton Oilers. Yes. What was he like to deal with either when he was the visitor coming into Nashville or when you went to Edmonton?
1: Well, he and I go back to when I was with the King. So late seventies. And, uh, matter of fact, I got to try and see if we end up going back to the Phoenix area. That's where he lives now. Uh, talking with him uh, more than a little bit, very animated guy, fun (laughs) man. And I don't know if you might've even seen the night they retired Wayne Gretzky's number where he, he was the on ice uh, host MC of that ceremony. And I'll never forget him breaking down when he said for the last time, number 99, Wayne Gretzky.
0: I think Uh, I remember hearing something like that when he had scored, what was it? 800th goal or something like that
1: or 800 second when he beat gordie howe
0: yeah something like that but i don't remember if i got the rod phillips call or not yeah but now some of the broadcasters of today that you've gotten good stories out of and who you feel like you've gotten a good rapport with over the you know over your career and
1: well there's some of us in the nhl
0: who all were doing
1: college hockey simultaneously in the same league uh i think king cow did that yep bob kurtz though Ken was after me in college hockey. Bob Bob Kurtz, the voice of the Minnesota Wild, was doing Michigan State. Bob Miller was doing Wisconsin. Uh, I was doing the Notre uh, Dame Dame Fighting Irish. Chuck Mm -hmm. Caton was doing Michigan, and then when Bob Miller went to Los Angeles, took Bob Miller's place in Wisconsin. The guy whose place I took on the Kings broadcast, Rich Murata, was doing Colorado College. The guy who's been voice of the Rochester Americans in the American League since 86, Don Stevens, he was doing the other ND in the Western Collegiate Hockey Association, North Dakota. And when I moved to Seattle, he was my real estate agent there.
0: Really? Yeah. And I think from what I'm hearing, a previous guest says that Chuck Caden could be back in the NHL. Could be. We're,
1: we're hoping uh, – And I don't want to jinx anything, but yes, we're hoping for that.
0: I hope so too. I mean, I, you know, I, he is one of the guys that, how can I put it? He is the, I don't know, the Kevin Harlan of hockey because he talks so fast, but yet he figures out what's going on like quickly.
1: Just so you know, he talks that quickly in regular life as well. Really? Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, this has been more than fun. I know I've taken, let's see, almost a full hour, which I, you know, we went way beyond your fifteen-minute schedule.
1: And I've got a, I've got a call coming up at the top of the hour, so.
0: So, besides the top of the hour call, what projects are you kind of working on to try to keep yourself from going stir crazy?
1: Well, I've I, I end up somehow with uh, almost two or three of these every day, so I'm not <laughs> accomplishing too much otherwise. <laughs>
0: Well, hopefully the next time we get a chance to do these interviews and hopefully you'll be a return guest, we'll be talking about games and hopefully a deep run if the NHL ever at, decides to decide if they're going to, you know, get the seasons back underway, because I have no idea how they're going to be able to, you know, get the remaining games of the season and plus, you know, with the playoffs and everything else, is if they're going to have to change format or If it's still going to be the same or how?
1: Well, it's hard to figure out because we know nothing about how the world wants to deal with this pandemic. Uh, So one little lesson we're going to learn is as the German Soccer League comes back, uh, do they have any relapses? And we'll be watching that carefully.
0: And I think I saw something where baseball could be coming back in Germany as well. Yeah, I think I saw something.
1: But nothing like, like some good old German baseball. <laughs> Even though I'm German, air schlägt his teeth, teeth,
0: teeth. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, my friend. You got it, Be yes, good. Yes, sir.